This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker Spine and Orthopedic Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Grant Shiflett, a spine surgeon at Disc Sports and Spine Center in Newport Beach, California. Dr. Shiflett, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I know today we're going to talk a lot about artificial disc replacement, some of the different innovations and ways that the spine field is evolving. But before we do that, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure, Laura. So um, as you mentioned, I am a spine surgeon at the Disc Sports and Spine Center in Newport Beach. Uh, We also have an office in Los Angeles. Uh, I am a board-certified, fellowship-trained spine surgeon uh, doing exclusive exclusively doing spine surgery. And uh, my focus is primarily on minimally invasive and outpatient spine surgery. And uh, one of my particular uh, favorites of all things that we do is is doing disc replacement and motion preservation surgery, which I think we're going to touch on a fair amount today. Great. Let's dive right in. What are some of the biggest trends and innovations that you're seeing in artificial disc replacement right now? Well, I, I think one of the best trends is that we're, we're finally turning a bit of a corner, I believe, in uh, actually getting folks to do artificial disc replacement. You know, there's really just a preponderance of evidence out right now that shows how uh, great these discs work. Uh, and in fact, in many cases are superior to the, the sort of gold standard treatment for many cervical and lumbar conditions, which often has been fusion. Uh, you know, these have been proven in many ways to be superior to fusions. And, and so a lot of folks are finally picking up on this trend and starting to do a lot of um, disc replacements. And, and the insurers and payers are finally starting to pick up on it. And, and it's getting easier for us to get uh, these cases approved, um, which I think is, is exciting because for many of us over the years, it's been a challenge uh, pushing these, you know, patients want them, we want them, but the, the insurers aren't letting us do them. So now, we're finally starting to turn a corner there. That's really great to hear. And, you know, when you think about some of the challenges initially with insurers and payers approving the procedure, um, now they're a little bit more receptive to that. How were you able to, you know, what is the process, I guess, of working with them to achieve some of that reimbursement, especially for um, surgeons that currently, you know, may be interested in doing the procedure, but they're just not sure if they'll be able to get coverage if they do move forward with bringing it into their practice? Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, fortunately now, because there's been so much data that's come out over the years uh, and presented by uh, many of our societies to many of the large payers, it's it's kind of becoming more nationalized that these are approved. So um, there are still certain um, companies that will not approve them. And honestly, um, a, a good way to go about this is, well, number one, I think still submitting for what you want to do. And, um, you know, if the insurance comes back and says no, well, you have an opportunity to make an argument for why you should be able to. So there's that one angle, you know, just submit it and have that conversation. In many cases, you submit it, it will get approved. Um, There's also a lot of uh, the device companies have come out with many guidelines. And actually, some of them have entire teams dedicated to helping get these cases approved for surgeons for patients. So I think looking at the resources, talking to your uh, representatives with the different companies uh, and getting hotlines for the patients, hotlines for your administ- for your staff, your surgery schedulers, your insurance authorizers, et cetera, uh, there's a lot of help out there. So I wouldn't be um, uh, scared off just by the threat of potentially not getting it approved. 
Absolutely. Well, that's really great to hear. And now I'm also wondering from your perspective, is uh, this something that you've done in the outpatient setting or primarily an inpatient so far? So I would actually say the overwhelming majority in the outpatient setting. And, and that's because uh, for, for years, uh, intracervical discectomy infusions have been done um, safely in the outpatient environment. And so uh, transitioning to a, a less invasive surgery like a disc replacement uh, it has been really easy to incorporate into an outpatient practice. And uh, it's very rare that we have to take folks to the uh, inpatient setting uh, in disc replacement. So I would feel comfortable with that. I think um, sometimes w- considerations we might make are, uh, and, and here some folks might have, is when you're doing disc replacements and some of the different implants that might have a particular uh, cutting devices um, that might cut into the bone. Some folks fear about um, potential bleeding risks. And so uh, there are intraoperative strategies as you would you know, uh, incorporate, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, to help lessen bleeding risks, um, whether it be hemostatic agents or bone wax or using drains. Uh, so uh, I think it very safely can be performed as an outpatient and in fact, um, I think in the overwhelming majority of cases will be done that way. That's really great to hear. Um, and, and so interesting to think about how the procedure has evolved. And like you said, the ease of transitioning uh, those ACDF cases, putting them into the disc replacement now in the outpatient setting. The last question I had for you here before moving on is just looking at the you know, innovation within the artificial disc replacement technology itself. What do you see as being uh, really cutting edge today? How has the technology evolved in, in what today is really kind of in front and center in terms of um, the type of disc or the type of uh, technology um, that you're using in your practice? Sure. So I, I think there's probably two parts to answering that. One is uh, the real innovation uh, is coming from just the application of the, of the disc, meaning okay, now we've gotten one level approved, now we've gotten two level approved, can we actually go on to do three or four level disc replacements and what are the outcomes from those? So some of the innovation and the innovators are, are trying to do more disc replacements than just one or two. And that's taking the discs we already have available to us. Um, I think the evidence will prove for or against those strategies, but um, that's certainly one thing interesting moving forward. Additionally, I think hybrid surgery where disc replacements and fusions are used in conjunction to uh, preserve motion segments in patients where, you know, unfortunately not everyone is a candidate for a disc replacement. I think that's the most important uh, predictor of a positive outcome from a disc replacement is actually finding a good candidate. And so um, some discs are just not candidates. And so uh, unfortunately, because of the way many of the insurers work, it's, it's one or the other. You disc replace or you fuse. Um, but in actuality, there's probably a lot of people benefiting and who will benefit from hybrid surgeries where a disc replacement and a fusion are used when appropriate for the right indications. And that doesn't have anything to do with new technology. It's just, again, that application of the good technology we already have. Um, I, the last comment on that would be, I think, in, from an application standpoint, broadening the indications. And so, getting people who do these in a very tiny select group of folks realizing that they can get away with doing this in a much, much larger swath of individuals uh, uh, who are, are, are older, who may have more uh, degenerative disc disease than they think uh, they can comfortably deal with. 
uh, et cetera, but just kind of getting these devices into more patients uh, is probably one part of the, the, the innovation, if you will, moving forward that I hope uh, comes to pass. But beyond that, um, I think a lot of the material science uh, is evolving in terms of what is the right type of material, what's the radio density, is it MRI compatible, does it have compressibility, you know, trying to understand, you know, probably nothing perfect is out yet. Uh, there's lots of really, really, really exceptional stuff, but kind of still trying to find that perfect disc replacement. Um, There's a lot of variables to consider. So I, I think that the future still holds the perfect disc um, for, for many, for, and, and for many of us, we believe that that's still out yet to come, even though the current ones are really excellent. And then I think there, um, there's some kind of cool stuff happening in the lumbar spine where uh, disc replacements have been developed from an anterior approach, but developing disc replacements from a lateral approach, developing disc replacements from a posterior approach even. Um, and then ultimately uh, a, a company that's come out with a facet replacement uh, where you could imagine reconstructing a whole level, the disc and the facet joints. You know, so the really interesting stuff um, that I think we've got a long way to go still in trying to preserve motion segments in folks, but um, making a lot of headway and, and a lot of exciting stuff. Got it, got it. That is exciting to hear. Now, beyond the disc replacements, how do you see the spine field evolving in the next five years or so? Well, I probably along the same line as I think the evolution of people moving away from fusions is going to happen and continue to happen and uh, that's because disc replacements will supplant them, I think, as the standard of care for many uh, diagnoses. I think uh, even just the mindset of becoming less invasive and doing more decompression surgery, microsurgery, as opposed to fusion surgery, uh, even potentially endoscopic surgery, which has been around for a while, but it seems to be picking up some steam. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of people who are doing less over the next five years. And I think that's probably a good thing for spine surgery where notoriously we've overtreated people. And um, if, if it doesn't happen naturally, I think probably the uh, insurers uh, are going to start pushing that where uh, payments are going to be less for fusions. There's going to be, it's going to be harder to approve fusions. I think you're, you're going to start tying um, uh, quality outcomes to payment. And so, you know, someone, some metrics may show people not doing as well after a fusion where they do better with a, uh, with a decompression. And so um, it's going to kind of flip the world around depending on, on, on how that process works. And then, um, you know, bundled payments and, and what happens there where the cost of surgery really matters. And fusion surgeries are incredibly expensive and complications that can happen from them and, and long-term effects that can happen, uh, those costs add up. So I think... Um, we're going to have to sort of refocus on, on the patient and doing less to the patient, largely by um, narrowing indications for fusion, incorporating microsurgery, incorporating disc replacement. And uh, it's probably going to be coming from all angles why we do that. Got it. Got it. That, you know, it sounds so interesting and a lot of different uh, factors and variables going on there. Before we wrap up our conversation, what are the top three trends that you're following in healthcare today? So one, which I, I think is uh, applicable everywhere, but uh, has been interesting for us is, is telehealth and its emergence and whether or not it stays or goes away. And do we continue to get paid for it? Do we not? 
um, I think it's been really um, a big win for us and our ability to see patients from a, a broad uh, swath of the area around us and, and with different complex conditions and giving people second opinions. And I mean, even folks from out of state, far away as Alaska. I mean, it just, it really has been a unique ability to interact with someone and, and, and look them in the eye and, and talk to them about their problem and, and, and in many cases give folks hope um, to get them better where before perhaps they hadn't had that. So it, tell, it also has helped with people who just, you know, are doing really great and we're probably wasting their time and our time by making them drive an hour to come say, hey, you look good, everything looks good. So for convenience, for um, opportunity, for uh, a variety of reasons, telehealth has been really neat and we'll see if it stays. Um, I think the the whole value-based uh, healthcare bundled payments, how we get paid, what we get paid for, how our outcomes evaluate, just that whole world of um, quality and payment and how they're linked uh, is, is going to be really interesting to see how that evolves and um, how we're impacted and how much of a voice we have in that process. But I think it, it, anyone in this field would say that the future holds a lot of discussion uh, re regarding and surrounding those topics. And it kind of ties into sort of the last trend to me, which I watch as, as being a, a, a younger guy, uh, not a young guy, but a younger guy with a long career probably ahead is where is medicine heading? And, um, I, I, you know, I don't want to paint a bleak picture, but I look at this in terms of, you know, the voice that we have as providers and physicians and surgeons. And it seems like every day that voice is getting stripped away more and more by uh, insurers kind of denying care, determining what we can and can't do, um, uh, taking away decisions from us. You know, if you look at more than half of us are employed in some way, well, that means we're working for someone else. Uh, you know, I'm in a private practice. I work for myself and I make my own decisions, but, um, uh, I still have to answer to the insurance companies. Not, not a day goes by that I tell patients, unfortunately, and this is very unfortunate, that insurance companies make medical decisions, doctors don't. You know, that's a pretty sad state of affairs. So I think we're going on this not a great trajectory in medicine where we're giving up autonomy and decisions are being made for us and we're becoming more just worker bees. And um, uh, not only is that not good for us as a profession, I, I worry about patients. You know, I had a guy last week who was the clear as day disc replacement candidate and the insurance company wouldn't approve it and would rather him have a fusion. He's 28 years old. And that's pretty sad when, uh, you know, I'm supposedly the expert uh, telling a young guy operation, I'll give him the rest of his life, a big benefit. And um, they want him to have something else done to him. So I, you know, I think that picture of what is going to happen in medicine, where are we going and what level of control we have, hopefully that pendulum swings the other direction, but I'm just watching that closely. Absolutely. A lot of, a lot to think about right there. Now, uh, Dr. Shivla, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fantastic discussion and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thanks so much. Well, I really appreciate it. it was a lot of fun and uh, great chatting with you and happy to be here.